Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 10 on the nature of Middle-earth, as we should be making some significant progress towards the, uh, in, you know, towards the end of part one uh, today. I am not so rash as to predict that we are going to finish part one today. <clears throat> However, I am feeling very confident that we are going to finish it uh, before the Christmas break here. Um, yeah, yeah, because we've got this week, we've got tonight, and next week. And then uh, I'm going to be away for a couple weeks for the last two weeks of uh, December. It's going to be hard for me to broadcast then. So we'll do tonight, tomorrow, tonight, next week, and then uh, two weeks off, and we'll come back in January. But we should be starting up with, uh, um, at the very latest, I think, we'll be starting up with part two, uh, in January. So, all right. Um, two very cool announcements tonight. Um, before we, uh, before we get going. Oh, and, uh, uh, so folks who are, uh, watching, trying to watch on Twitch or something, you might need to refresh the page, uh, in order to see it. Um, Okay, so uh, two quick announcements, but they're awesome. Uh, one is that registration is open for MythMoot, our annual uh, conference and uh, international get-together, hopefully international. Um, uh, certainly the hybrid version will be international, uh, and uh, here's hoping that we'll be able to uh, have more international travel happening by June. Um, but... Um, uh, MythMoot registration is open. Go to signumuniversity.org slash MythMoot and you can see information on this year's MythMoot and links uh, to uh, register to attend MythMoot, whether digitally or um, uh, or and, uh, or physically. Uh, so that'll be really good. And you will notice uh, that our rates for MythMoot are dramatically lower this year than they were uh, in years past. Um uh, so, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, that is, um, uh, one thing I was very excited about this year. I was, uh, hopeful last year that, you know, after last year, I was hopeful that we'd be able to do it, you know, sat down and, uh, did the math. Um, I didn't do long division on paper like Tolkien would have done, uh, and obviously enjoyed doing. Um, but, uh, anyway, I did the math and, uh, uh, it was yet another way in which we saw math and myth working together, uh, was the, the calculations that led me to conclude we could reduce our rates, uh, for, uh, uh for myth mood. So anyway, um, yeah, so let's see, oh, Arthur, what is the theme? I, I, I want to, I don't want to, get it wrong uh, I don't want to quote it wrong because it's left my head uh, but uh, yeah <laughs> Steve wants to know is doing long division out to so many decimal points going to be this Smith Moots reenactment <laughs> I bet that would go over like a house on fire right um, yeah I oh, why am I blanking on the uh, the um the theme, the title, Remaking Myth. That's it. Okay. I just, so I just clicked on the link, and there it is. Remaking Myth. That is the theme uh, for Mooth this year. That's it. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, I was like, 
Uh, I'm like, I know it's something to do with myth. <laughs> what are we doing to myth? Remaking it. That's what we did. I almost said reinventing it. I'm like, I know that's not right. It's, it, it's in that direction, but that's not quite it. Yes, remaking myth uh, is, the, uh, is the theme of our, uh, of our moot this year, which is going to be, I think, going to be very cool. So, uh, Myth Moot, as always, is happening at the last week of June, and as always, it will be fully hybrid. One of the things you will notice as part of the significant decrease in uh, the registration prices this year um, is that the Moot Hub, which is the with, you know the full access um, uh, version of the uh, digital attendance. Um, has been reduced to the price of the low version one from last year. So we just ditched the low version uh, and uh, uh, you, you now get Moot Hub for the previous Mootcast price. Uh, so uh, that uh, is uh, pretty fun. And here's my second announcement. My second announcement is that we have recently uh, released our next lists for space. Our first space modules are happening right now and we have... 44 people participating in our very first month worth of space modules, and it's awesome. Uh, there is a lot of fun being had uh, studying and learning things this December. Um, our confirmed modules uh, for January have been posted, so there are now seven modules that we're going to be definitely running in January, and we published the candidate list for February. So check this out. Here's what you can see both of these lists on signumuniversity.org/space. But here's the modules that we're offering for February, which people can choose among. Beginning languages. We have Latin. You can either Latin 1 and 2, because both Latin and Old English 1 are running in January. Um, so people who've taken Latin 1 and Old English 1 will be able to continue on to 2, but we're also offering 1 in case we get more people who want to start those. Um, so Latin and Old English, both 1 and 2, are being uh, offered. Conversational French. Uh, hieroglyphics for folks who want to learn how to read Egyptian hieroglyphics. Uh, uh, module on Tolkien's invented languages, which is uh, like the one that's being run this January. Um, and also a new one on Tolkien's writing systems. And then we have two advanced language modules, one on Latin and one in Old English. Our advanced language modules are designed for people who already have some training in those languages and would like to just continue to practice the, you know, reading texts uh, in uh, and in those languages um, to kind of keep your hand in with those languages and make sure you don't completely forget them like you do when time goes by and you don't use it. So uh, we're doing a Latin reading class, uh, reading Latin version of Aesop's fables, and we're doing an old English class on heroic elegies. That's a lot of the like most famous uh, short poetry. They're, I think they're going to be doing like the Wanderer uh, and the Seafarer, and uh, uh, you know, where now the horse and the rider, all that stuff. That'll be in the uh, the old English advanced language module uh, for February. Um, in addition, we have two creative writing modules that we're offering. We're continuing to offer our creative writing workshop, which has been uh, a lot of people have been really enjoying that. And uh, we're also offering a second special creative writing module in February called Writing for Children, focusing on people who are really interested in writing for children. Um, and then in fantasy studies, we have five fantasy studies modules that we're offering. Uh, the Fantastic in East Asia, uh, to learn a little bit about both fanta fantastic literature and uh, film traditions in East Asia, Chinese and Japanese primarily. Um, a, the, the first module of a series of, um, it's a, a sort of an investigation of 
fairy tales. Uh, it's like a kind of a like a comprehensive look at fairy tales and the, de- and the development of the fairy tale tradition. Really, really cool stuff there. Um, uh, another module, another uh, the beginning of a deep dive into Miyazaki's anime films. Uh, uh, Are you Tolkien to me? Which is the module about the sort of the way in which Tolkien, which is increasingly old and many people you know some people argue that it's kind of dated right but the ways in which Tolkien continues to speak to the modern condition is going to be you know sort of the a kind of you know a discussion of that um, and then a module on Babylon 5 as well the TV show Babylon 5 this is actually again the beginning of a deep dive into Babylon 5 actually um, that uh, if people are interested in that there would be much more to come on Babylon 5 there so Anyway, that is what uh, is coming in February to our space modules. Uh, if you are interested in any of these and you want to make sure now, keep in mind, we're not necessarily going to run all of this is 17 total modules um, that we um, uh, uh, that we're offering for February probably not going to run all 17 of them, but it depends on what people choose. If we have, uh, you know, students who have tokens who are, you know, ready, who want to take them, we'll run them. Uh, So what happens is just, uh, you just need to buy some space tokens. And then once you're a token holder, uh, we'll give you the selection form and you can let us know which one of these you're interested in. And hopefully we'll be, we'll end up planning to run that in February. Um, yeah, yeah. So, okay. Anyway, that is what is coming in space, and it's uh, it's it's gonna be it's gonna be awesome. The space program has been extremely exciting, uh, not only to be involved in the planning and everything with that, but to see uh, the response to that. We've had, you know, it's been less than two months since we introduced the concept of the space program to folks in the middle of October, um, and we've already had 130. Uh, uh, tokens purchased. We have um, uh, 60 or so people who have, uh, uh, you know, participated, who have, who have come in to, uh, to buy tokens and, and sign up for classes. Um, the classes are not asynchronous, uh, Uh They are all synchronous discussion classes. Um, they're all small group uh, discussions. They are not asynchronous. Um, that's uh, part of the whole philosophy of space. This is a chance to get together with people and really dig into discussion on these things and to have, so especially for things like the language classes, it's extremely useful to have a teacher there who's able to kind of help you through stuff. So, yep, that is how space works. Um, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, so... Let's get back into the text. So I'm uh, going to do that thing where I go backwards a little bit and then go forwards again. Not that I'm going to spend a whole time, as I always say, not that I'm going to spend the whole time talking about these. Um, but I, I didn't want to just kind of jump in exactly where we left because it was kind of in the middle of things. And where we were is in a later reconsideration. You may remember... Um, at the, at the end, we were looking at this slide where after he had been considering the narrative, we see him, we see Tolkien reconsidering things again. And what we were focused on last time was looking at the basis for his reconsideration, right? What matters most is not that you remember, is not that you do the math, though you can. Uh, and that's also fun for people. Clearly Tolkien thought it fun. Um, 
Uh, it's not that you do the math. It's not that you memorize the numbers. It's, it's not going to be a quiz on, you know, what is the ratio between elvish growth years and, you know, mortal years and all that kind of thing. It, you know, in what year of Tolkien's life and all that kind of thing. You don't have to memorize this stuff as facts. Um, to me, the really important thing is beginning to understand, to see more clearly what is the basis upon which he's making decisions, what matters to him, right? Um, how do we see the story developing, the story, the world developing here around him? Um, and we can see hear clearly what is motivating this. All the elaborate calculations based on Olmier 12 to 1 and Coivier, Olmier remembers the growth years, Coivier is the life years, and Coivier 144 to 1 are both cumbrous and in early narrative, Awaking and Finding, March, etc., quite unworkable. Also unlikely. Right, so there, and I would want to emphasize again both of those things, right? Both of those are conclusions that he's coming to. First, it's unworkable. He's just, he's having a hard time making everything fit, making everything work, right? He, as we've seen many times, he insists that there be a system. He's not going to wave his hands at this, right? There, he, he's trying to understand how elves work, right? Um, and he wants that to be able to work, to be mathematically mappable, and then to map it, in fact, right? So that he is being accurate about that, that he's building something which is real in that way, right? Um, so he wants to have, uh, to, 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 to really put his finger on the way that elvish lives work because it, it's, it makes a big difference, right? It makes a big difference. And then he wants to work out the math so that he can actually know, so that he can say things. And we see these numbers, the way that these numbers get confidently thrown into narrative chunks, right? After he's done those calculations and he can confidently say how many elves there are at the Great March. How many, uh, you know, in what generation? What is the relationship? What is the distance in descent, right? From the original elves, like the, the original three elves, uh, the three fathers of the elves, and the three ambassadors. That was one of the really interesting things, right? To see that not only are the three ambassadors not original elves as he had, as he had initially conceived them and as they're depicted in the published Silmarillion, um, but they're like 25th generation elves by this time, right? It's a huge difference and it has a big impact on the story. And we've seen, uh, we've already begun to see some of those ideas um, kind of... Um, kind of kind of work through um so anyway um that is um uh yeah james and that's a really neat point james was saying today i thought of aragorn's line i am no longer young even in the reckoning of the men of ancient of the ancient houses right uh and he says all the ratios and calculations totally gave me a new perspective uh on this saying of his yes and james that's Clearly, that kind of thing is one of his touch touchstones, right? It has to work with the story, right? If there is one law, if there's one thing which rules over every other consideration, it's the story, right? Um, we saw that with Maeglin, right? The Maeglin story compelled a change. Remember, he, he briefly contemplated what would he, how would he have to change the story in order to make the in, in order to get Maeglin in 
with the old models of birth and growth and development of the elves, right? And that change involved, remember, Arathel, like, rebelling and never going to Valinor and meeting Aeol over in Beleriand before they, you know, the Noldor went to, um, and the two of them kind of rebelling together. In other words, Gondolin had to be completely taken out of the picture. Um, in, I mean, like, by many centuries taken out of the picture. Um, and at the end of the day, he was not willing to make that compromise, right? And he decided very strongly the original story has to stay and everything else has to be made to fit that, right? Um, and that the, the, the desire for a system and the desire to... And then working out that implication then to make sure that the system which works there is going to work everywhere else, right? We've seen him go back and we've seen him... I mean, how many times already now has he calculated the ages of Aragorn and Arwen as he calculated the ages of, you know, uh, I, I, you know Elrond and Calabrian and Galadriel, right? I mean, this is um, what he keeps coming back to as these markers to make sure it all works, right? Um, and uh, he's not content. So anyway, back to his two points here. Quite unworkable, also unlikely. Right. Quite unworkable speaks to the fact that it's just he can't he can't get it to come out right. He's got he he needs he feels that he needs to reconsider this system because though he's tried to make it work and he's he's tweaked some things here and there in order to try to make it work, uh he's in the end he is rejecting that system. So he needs to change the system to fit the narrative better. Right? But the second point is, to me, the fascinating one. Also unlikely. And this is him, as I think I suggested last time, it sounds to me anyway, kind of talking himself into what the new system would look like. Right? It's unlikely. Actually, you know, the more I think about it, elves, elves wouldn't really work that way. Right? Elves wouldn't actually take that long to grow up. They wouldn't actually take 240 mortal years to grow up, you know, to get to age 20. Um, get to marriageable age. Um, and you see him begin to develop the rationale. Right? The difference between elves and men is mainly in longevity after becoming full-grown. This depends, depends mainly on the difference in powers of elvish and human Fear. As far as the Hroar go, elves are of the flesh of Arda and quite unlikely to grow at a rate wholly out of keeping with the rest of corporeal and incarnate creatures. Their flesh is flesh. Right? So... They're not going to be their life cycle is not going to be that far out of whack. Not only from humans, but from animals and things, right? I mean, they're 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 of the flesh of Arda, like everything else. So, yeah, okay. When I think about it from that perspective, it's fine. Let's pitch it. Let's pitch the twelve to one idea, um, and go to a one to one idea for growth years, right? So it's one to one, and then it stretches out to one forty four to one. And but again, you'll notice notice how he is he's retweaking his world building. He's rethinking that. And that's going to have serious implications for what, like, what does it mean? What does it mean for elves to be immortal? Well, he's just changed that. The old one consists, the old system consisted of them, like his initial world building concept was they're just like out of phase with humans. Um, they're, well, out of phase is not quite right. They're just operating on a different scale. It's proportional, the scale, and we've seen him continuously insist on that, um, on the equivalencies uh, and the proportions between elves and men and their growth and development. 
it's just it's 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 on a different time passes differently for them their experience of time is different um and but that's what he's completely reconsidering here it's a radical shift this is a radical shift for him to change to a one to one um uh, a one to one change here a one to one uh, uh growth rate um it is a complete redefinition um it is a complete redefinition of elvish immortality. And as we'll see, that's going to have some interesting consequences as he continues to think through, what does that mean? Like as he like, lives there, you know what I mean? Within the story and within the languages also. Um, yeah, yeah. Let's see. Um, exactly, Stephen. They're not going to be in diapers for decades. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, so John, interesting. So we have an interesting pair of comments here. Um, Jocelyn says, is this kind of struggling with the backstory to fit the front story usual with authors? Or would you say it's more common for them to create the world and then do the story? Um, and then Stephen, at almost the same time, said, it's bizarre to have an author who won't simply change the published story to fit their current whims. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I, I, those two... Comments seem to me to kind of connect with each other. Um, do I think it's uh, usual? I, I think it, this is not that weird. Um, I think that there are a lot of people, especially people who are focused on doing, um, you know, who are doing fantasy world building and really care about the internal consistency of that world. I think some of these kinds of struggles are pretty normal. I do think, as Stephen is, is uh, uh, sort of suggesting uh, comically there, um, Tolkien is a little bit unusual in the extent to which, and he almost always does this, um, very, very rarely does he just silently deviate from the text. Like he tends to take the published texts as I don't want to use the word canon because that word gets kind of awkwardly overused in some way. It's kind of lost its meaning in a lot of ways. Um, but he takes, uh, certainly the meaning of that has shifted beyond anything that the people who, uh, like the people in my profession, uh, English professors who, uh, talked about canon would no longer even recognize what that word means these days. Um, but anyway, he takes it as like, it's established fact. It's established fact, right? That's the existing tradition. And keep in mind, this was his life. This was his job, right? What you do when you study medieval literature, right? When you study medieval stuff, you have like, a certain number of manuscripts and you compare those manuscripts with each other, right? And you try to, you know, there's like the, you know, you try to establish what is the, the, your best understanding of, you know, the authoritative tradition, um, you know, what is the best text and, uh, you know, uh, what is, uh, what is the likeliest explanation of any, uh, discrepancies there? This is sort of the world that he lives in, right? So he takes the published, his published text as an established text, and you'll remember his reference to scribal errors, right? Um, when he's going to say, I, I just can't live with what's published. I have to change it. Um, then in general, he has to come up with a story, an explanation for why he's deviating from that. Of course, the most famous example of this is the rewriting of chapter five for The Hobbit, 
right. Um, but um, as I say, there are few. There are not no examples of him silently making changes. The quiet disappearance of the stone giants of the Misty Mountains would be one example, right? Um, they get um, apparently they seem to get kind of politely. Uh, quietly ushered off stage while nobody's noticing, uh, in a sense, right? But, um, uh, but anyway, yeah, he, um, yeah, Astro Gypsy, that's a really interesting way to say it. He's willing to discredit the published work uh, on particular points. He's willing to, like, disagree with it in ways and call it an error, right? But he won't take mulligans and rewrite what is published. Yeah. Yeah, no, that he that he he doesn't do. He tries first to reconcile it, right, and to find ways to make it fit. Um, and when he absolutely can't, he um, uh, he'll you know correct it. But uh, but yeah, he won't just say, oh, no, he won't pull a you know various kind of. Um, there are lots of authors who do. I was about to, you know. Um, give J.K. Rowling as the example of this, but I I, uh, I do this I do that too often. I shouldn't be uh, so mean to poor J.K. She's one of many authors that do this kind of thing. Um, that kind of later on in talking about the work attempt to sort of change it retroactively, right? Um, in ways that just I like don't need to happen and don't actually make sense uh, and are in fact, inconsistent with what was published. Um, and no matter what she says afterwards, it's not going to change the fact that it's not actually in the text, right? Um, but um, anyway, um, Christopher, you're right that a lot of biblical scholars uh, do that very thing as well. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a, um, a robust tradition. <laughs> that kind of thing is certainly a robust tradition. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh The last slide that we were looking at last time was his synopsis, right? Um, looking at the full working out, the, the kind of sketching through of the whole new system that he's considering here. Um, let elves remain in the room for one, remain in the womb. They can remain in the room as long as they like, but they remain in the womb for one loa, right? One year spring to spring, and all the elven women said thank you very much. Both sexes reach maturity at 24 loar and then slow. But puberty is different. In males reached at about 21, in females at 18. Uh, and then, right, the sentence I don't understand, and then the first elves awoke at the ages of 21 and 18. Weddings were immediate. Later weddings in early years before the march, usually at 24, uh, 21 to 24. Note on that in just a second. And then we have, again, the growth years. One olman, one growth year equals one loa, one year of the sun. One koimen, one year of life, equals 144 loar. And kolbanavie, gestation, is one year. Antavalie, puberty, happens at 21 and 18. Quantolie, maturity, happens at 24. So again, you, uh, you've, you've completed puberty at 21 or 18, but you can't rent a car until you're 24. Um, and Vinimetta, uh, end of youth, 96, which equals 24 loar, plus 72 koimendi, which is actually 10,394 loar. 
Um, okay, so we can see that the, the, the difference is all about the, the beginning, right? But what it means also is it puts a different kind of pressure on the immor- the, their, like, adult, mature lives, right? Um, that... <clears throat> Notice one thing that seems to me to be kind of inevitably happening here. Like, to me, it seems inevitable. Um, can you remember where it began before he even introduced for the first time the idea of the de- of the, the that growth years are quicker, right? Back when at the very beginning he was saying one forty four to one all the way through, right? Um, that's when he began insisting on the parallels, right? The parallels between the mature, you know, the, the the growth cycle, the the life cycle, I should say, of the elves and the life cycle of humans. Um, the when 24 became a really important number, right? The, uh, that age of maturity, the age when, you know, marriages tend to start happening and that kind of thing. Um, and that parallel was coming under greater and greater strain the more he was shifting things. Now, I think it's under very considerable strain. Um... Do you see what I mean by that? There is nothing... The comparison breaks down because there is nothing at all in human experience that corresponds to the slowdown. The kind of slowdown that he's talking about. That the life cycles are not just parallel, they're practically identical between elves and humans. Right? Um, so you look at an eight-year-old elf and an eight-year-old human, they're going to be pretty similar, right? You look at a 14-year-old elf and a 14-year-old human, they're going to be pretty similar, right? Um, so they're, they're going along more or less exactly in step, right? Not quite exactly. There are going to be differences. I mean, you know, humans achieve puberty earlier than that, so it's not going to be identical. Um, but... Um, uh, and yes, Kit, he does appear to mean sexual maturity uh, when he's talking about puberty. I agree. Um, but anyway, um, so um, the... Uh, um, what was I saying? Oh, yeah. So by having them much closer to lockstep, not just parallel anymore, right? But their bodies are working basically the same, right? Some differences, but it's basically running the same routines, Growth, the growth and maturity routine, right? Um, which is the same for both of them until age 24 when, boom, radical change, right? The humans continue to mature in the same growth cycle, right? And the elves now functionally freeze. So, so functionally from a human perspective, right? So if the two next door neighbor, you know, the, the, the two next, you know, there's, there's an elf family and a human family that live next door to each other and have a baby at the same time and the babies grow up playing, you know, together in the front yards, right? Um, they're going to be the best of friends, right? All the way through, uh, you know, uh, high school and college years. Um, and then from the perspective of the human uh, play date partner, um, 
the elf is just gonna is gonna freeze, right? Because the elf is not going to significantly change in growth or maturity, externally, physically, externally, for another ten thousand nine hundred and sixty-eight years, right? Um, or three hundred and sixty-eight years. I mean, ten thousand three hundred sixty-eight years. So I get functionally freezing, right, in development. That's not longer. That's not longer parallel, right? Um, uh, we don't have. We it's it's they're they're not two overall parallel life cycles anymore. Now it's life cycles which are identical for a portion and then utterly disparate after that, and there is no longer anything that even really corresponds to aging at all, um, as they just, they get more and more different, um, I, you know, and never come back into contact again after age 24. He can talk about the ending of the vinimetta, the end of youth, but that does not mean anything like for an elf what it means for a human, right? So, <clears throat> it does mean, so, apologies. Sorry. It does mean that his overall concept of like what it means to be an elf is changing here. And again, re- remember where this has come from. <clears throat> it starts it starts with it being unworkable and then unlikely. Right? First unworkable, then unlikely. Um, it's because of the math. Well, because of the story and the math. So if we had to build a hierarchy here, right, from what we can see, it would seem that the hierarchy of priorities for Tolkien goes story at the top, right? The stories that he's committed to. Um, Even now, remember, Silmarillion's not been published. So a lot of those Silmarillion stories, Maeglin, why is he stuck with that? Right? It's it's not like the Lord of the Rings. It's not out there. It's not out there. Who's heard of Maeglin in 1959? Right? Maeglin's not out there. Uh, so, I mean, he wants Maeglin to be out there. So it's not exactly the same situation as his, you know, kind of um, respect for the... Um, uh, his kind of respect for the... Uh, um, the published story is, you know, acceptance of the published text as an established text that doesn't come in with the Silmarillion. He can make changes as of course we see him willing to make changes like hello round earth, right? Massive changes, you know, hello round earth, goodbye, uh, you know, making of the sun and moon. Um, those are radical, radical changes that he has shown himself willing to make. Um, uh, his the the fairly significant changes that he's willing to make about the timing of the finding of the elves, the timing of the awakening of men, um, major changes to the story. So it's not like he's unwilling to change anything. But the great stories, right? There are clearly some stories that he's like, no, no, I uh, I won't let that go. He wants the story of Maeglin. He wants the story of Gondolin and the story of Maeglin's betrayal. He wants Tuor and Idril and Maeglin 
we saw him doing math about Tuar and Idril, as well as Maeglin, right? Because he, he needs to make sure if, if the system doesn't fit those stories, it's out. Those stories are the most important, right? So, number one. Number one. Uh, <clears throat> the stories. That's the highest priority. The stories that he loves, the stories that he's committed to, uh, the stories that he will not let go. Second priority, the math. The math, the system, is the second priority. It should work. It should work consistently without making lots of funky exceptions. There can be some funky exceptions when it fits in with the stories, right? Uh, Example... Finway and Muriel, which is like a big funky exception to every rule, right? Um, but um, anyway, this is, uh, it's okay for there to be, some, but if you've got to make exceptions all over the place, then it doesn't work. He wants this in- this internal consistency of reality. He wants it to work. He wants it to be real, right? Um, and that seems to me to be his second priority, right below story. And then the third priority is world building. He is willing to change as we see happening before our eyes right here. He is willing to change the entire concept of what it means to be an elf or for an elf to be immortal or how the life experience um, and I don't know essence like yeah, like what being an elf means, right? That's not that's not what he's hanging his hat on. That seems to be pretty consistently throughout this, the lowest priority. He insists that there be something, that it be a consistent system. That's where the math comes in, right? But he does not, um, that is not what is driving him. He is, he is willing to make all kinds of shifts and changes about what it means to be an elf. I mean, there are some basic things that are non-negotiables, Right? that the life of elves is coterminous with Arda, for instance, right? Um, so that basic fact remains a fact, remains an established fact. There, there are definitely fixed points in his, um, you know, what I've been calling his world building, right? His kind of conception of the elves. Um, but he's willing to make a whole bunch of adjustments and we have seen that um, developing and changing um, pretty consistently as we've gone through. And that, I think, is really um, uh, one of the things, when I look back on, remember at the very first, uh, the beginning of the very first class, I was talking about the stuff that um, I felt like I learned right away from, like, page one of The Nature of Middle-Earth, Um you know, that I felt like on page one I was already seeing and discovering new things about Tolkien and that I, uh, by the time I'd gotten three pages into it, I felt like I had a new understanding about, uh, a new and better understanding for why he'd never published The Silmarillion in his lifetime. Um, But um, anyway, he... uh, as As we begin to approach the end of part one, what I feel that... I've, this is the stuff, the stuff that I'm talking about now, this kind of hierarchy that I'm seeing is the, the, the stuff that I feel like I've learned, uh, more, you know, the patterns that 
are becoming clearer and clearer. And I want to focus now on the um, the implications of these the evolution of the worldview, right? The 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 way that the how are elves changing? What does it mean now to be an elf? Um, uh, now that the story and the math are necessitating those changes. But first, my uh, return point. Um, I was uh, I received an, e- an email from a person who thought that I had um, who was uh, you know uh, enjoying several of the things that we'd been discussing, but felt that I had undersold a point that she thought was really important and 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 likely very important to Tolkien, and I think she was right. Um, so I wanted to uh, emphasize this, and that is. Uh, the sexual love of the first elves. Um, so I was reminded of that here in this slide. The first elves awoke at 2118. In other words, right at sexual maturity, right? Um, at uh, puberty. There, What he's calling puberty, which I believe, uh, Kit, as you suggested, does mean that is when they achieve sexual maturity, right? So they're, uh, they're clear for childbearing now, even if they're not fully mentally and emotionally mature yet, right? Um, uh, hence my joke about renting a car. Uh, but anyway, um, they they awoke at 2118. Anyway, the point um, uh, that this listener was making was that Tolkien seems to her to be very clearly and explicitly attempting to illustrate the sort of pure sexual love um, that it was it is common to think it has been common in the course of Christian tradition to think of original sin the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden as in some way sexual or that like sex was involved in some way Um, and this is, of course, if you've read Genesis three, quite untrue, um, and uh, there's there's uh, there's nothing sexual about it at all. Any the like any sort of taint of the sexual relationship with sin is all post the fall of Adam. It's a consequence of the fall of Adam and Eve, not uh, a, uh, a preamble to it. But it nevertheless has been. A, a, a kind of th- not a, 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 a continual theme uh, it's not that everyone has always gotten this wrong but um, it has been very common throughout Christian history um, to basically sort of characterize the sexual relationship itself as in some way intrinsically flawed, intrinsically sinful um, and that uh, I mean, even the question when they asked because they did. I mean, you know, medieval scholars asked all the questions. Like, there's no question that they didn't ask. Uh, uh, the the scholastics were very good at this, asking all the questions. I mean, you might not agree with all of their answers, but they asked all the questions. And uh, one of the questions that they asked is, did Adam and Eve have sex before they fell or before the fall? Um, what did sexuality happen before? you know, in a sinless state. And the, the answer was no before, right? I mean, that was that, you know, uh, early, there were differences of opinion on this, but the most commonly accepted answer was no, um, they did not. 
this is something, by the way, that like we see Milton in Paradise Lost um, kind of rebelling against deliberately. Um, he depicts Adam and Eve are sexually active in Eden before they fall. Um, that it is definitely a part of you know holy marriage before they um, uh, before they uh, uh, before they fall before they sin. Um, anyway, so that Tolkien. When we were looking at the, uh, you know, uh, several weeks back, the passages where we were looking at the, um, what was that wonderful word that Tolkien coined, uh, that the early elves were very, what was it, philo-procreative? Was that the word? Philo-procreative? Something like that? Um, If somebody remembers the word more precisely, remind me. Um, uh, uh, Anyway... um, Philoprogenitive. Okay, there it is. Philoprogenitive. Thank you, Chet. Um, yeah, that the early elves were very philoprogenitive, um, meaning they were highly disposed towards procreation. And it is very easy as modern readers, and I would add, without offense intended to any of my listeners, fallen modern readers, uh, to start giggling and snickering at that. Um, as well as one could potentially uh, uh, giggle and snicker uh, when the early at the myth of the early elves awakening and the first thing they see is their beautiful and unclad destined wives lying next to them and they're like wee-hee, right and they immediately start the procreating process right um, but I agree that I do think that it was important to Tolkien that he was depicting and this is this comes back into the the question of elvish sin and fallenness that we've talked about that Tolkien has come back to at several points. And I do agree that I think that he was wanting to depict there is there is a kind of purity to that that it's easy for us to miss because it's easy for us to project onto that all kinds of sort of traditions of uh, you know fallen lustful desires and things with which I think Tolkien was very clearly attempting to show that those early relationships were completely free of that. Um, But um, uh, anyway, so um, this is... I I do think that it's important to note this. I do think that this is actually... that that's... it is a motif of the way that he is treating the early elves in those ways. Um, I... the part of... The element of that that I find most successful is in the early mythic stories, um, the moment when... Remember when Tolkien said that the thing that inspired them to create language was the desire to express their admiration for the beauty both of the stars that they saw first when they awoke and of their spouses, right? Um, they were so enraptured by the beauty of their spouses um, and the, 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 the love, the year, the sexual love, right, that they felt for them was, uh, I, again, very much like that kind, that, that, that very innocent love uh, of, and appreciation of beauty in all things, right? Uh, that, that that inspires them to like 
come up with the idea of language, right? That's a beautiful idea. And I think there, that to me was the moment where I felt it was, uh, we could see Tolkien most powerfully uh, kind of trying to uh, help readers imaginatively get their minds around what um, uh, that kind of innocent, unfallen sexual desire was like. Um, so anyway, I just I, I thought that that was a really fair point, and I think I did underemphasize that uh, as we were going through before. Um, I would add as a side note, um, it is like what Tolkien is doing there is in some ways like though it's it's much much smaller in scale. I mean, he only just barely touches on it in the context, and, and this of course is very natural as he doesn't have a finished text anywhere here, right? I mean, there's not been a finished text uh, anywhere in this entire book so far, right? We see him working through ideas and, 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 you know, starting to prepare some texts with audiences in mind, but nothing is in anything like a final state, right? So we don't know what it would have become. Um, but uh, one of the, the, the comparison to me that's very interesting um, is C.S. Lewis's Paralandra. Um, in Paralandra, Lewis also is doing a lot of imaginative investment in what is the unfallen life like and what it what would it be like? How would an unfallen person interact differently, think differently, act differently? What would it be like? Um, not to be an unfallen person because he that would seem to kind of stretch imagination too far, but to interact with an unfallen person, right? To watch an unfallen person. Um, and uh, Lewis in Paralandra touches on this question of sort of sexuality and innocence. Um, uh, not as a dominant theme of that book by any sense, but it certainly comes up uh, at several points. So, um, okay. Anyway, um, okay. Good. Yeah. All right. So I just wanted to mention that because I thought that was a very important comment. All right. And now we're ready to begin. <laughs> very confident we're going to finish by the end of next week. Okay. So let's, um, let's again, let's think about what this looks like. Right. But of course, he's making some immediate readjustments. First elves awoke at Antevalier, puberty, males 21, females 18. But they did not turn to marriage until maturity of the elf man. 24, the elf woman being then 21. These ages were ever after held the earliest suitable ages for marriage, though elf women were sometimes married earlier. As soon as they were 18, they were sought in betrothal, a period which, whenever entered, usually lasted three years. But marriage could take place at any time before the waning of the Hroa. The sensation of possibly sexual desire was a mark of its approach. It was, however, naturally seldom entered into after the end of youth, circa age 60, equals growth years 24 plus 36. So, you know, rarely do you get married after the age of 5200. Um, and births after this age are seldom recorded. The later the marriage, the fewer the children. Now, footnote on uh, the age 60 being, it's seldom, uh, the end of youth being age 60, and uh, that marriage is seldom entered after that, but could often be delayed to about 96. That is, the end of youth could be delayed to about 96. Um, in the early years, especially before the march, the Quendi tended to concentrate on the Onalume and produce their children in a, for them, quick series, and then satisfied to turn to other things. But this only happened in the days of peace and serenity. Okay, so 
what do I mean by um, adjustments, right? Well, he's not changing the numbers exactly, though he's kind of fiddling with the idea of when the end of youth could be. But, um, but notice the change that he's making in the myth, right? The very scenes that I was describing, the, um, uh, the extreme philoprogenitiveness, no, philoprogenitivity. Ah, the philoprogenitivity of the uh, early elves, of the first elves, he's actually decreasing here, right? Um, he's decreasing it. They're not, they don't wake up at the age of 24, which is what they did before, and immediately procreate and have children. Why not? Why do we think he's made this change? Now, I've asked the why question, which I've said a hundred times over the years, can never have an answer. We don't, can't read Tolkien's mind. We don't know exactly why. So when I say why, what I'm saying is, what does the pattern suggest? What evidence do we, what other things seem connected to that question, right? Um, what patterns can we perceive that would help us to understand this change? to contextualize this change. And the answer would seem to be because he can. Why why were the elves so radically philoprogenitive in the earlier drafts, in the earlier myth writing? Why did they spring directly into procreation? Because there was no time to lose. If they, I mean, the math. It was the math. He'd done the math. You know, the generations and everything. Right? And if you're going to get from 24 elves, which is where he was starting originally, right? If you're going to get from 24 elves to at least 20,000 for the Great March, you better, like, you have no time to, you no three-year courting period. Right? You've got to get busy pronto right, with the begetting process in order to start your generational clock so that you can work your way up to 20,000. There was a, they, were, they were on a deadline, right? Yeah, exactly, Tarlonial. They had to go forth and multiply right the heck now if they were going to get to where he needed to be. They, and we've seen this has been one of his fixed points. The number of elves on the Great March. He doesn't have a precise number, but he has a ballpark. Right? The Great March is not going to be the Great March if there's only 150 elves on it. Right? He's not okay with that at all. That's very clear. That's come up again and again and again. One of the fixed story points that he insists upon is that there need to be thousands, ideally tens of that, more than 10,000, right? There need to be tens of thousands of elves involved in the separation with the Avari and in the march into the West. And in order to get there, According to the old system, with the growth years and everything else, right? Um, they, they, I mean, there was no time to lose. And so that mathematical reality was leading him to, like, that seemed to be prompting him. Like, he had to rationalize that in the worldview, right? 
And so he's like, yeah, oh man, philo progenitive. Like as soon as they woke up, they were like, and our first duty is to procreate. Let's get going. Right. Um, and, uh, but again, that was in large part him coming up with a worldview explanation for what seemed at the time to be a necessary fact, right, of the world that he had developed, of the story, you know, like story plus math equal that, right? But now, okay, look, if it only takes 24 years to grow up, to grow to maturity, oh, oh, there is a world of time. Talk about your radical impact on the math, right? Oh, this math works so much easier. So it decreases the pressure on this. And so with the pressure down, like they're not under the same kind of deadline, the early elves, to reproduce. So now he can give them a courtship period. So they wake up next to their destined spouse and they enter into a presumably celibate courtship relationship for three years. And then they marry and begin generation two of the elves. Right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Chris, absolutely. When pregnancy was 108 years, the pressure was intense. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, and, um, yeah. Oh, and Michael, I totally agree. I totally agree. Uh, it's not, this is not, it, that, that wasn't just him being stubborn. He does need to populate both continents or the entire myth is moot. Uh, agreed. Totally agreed. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. I'm not, uh, I, I didn't mean to imply any criticism on him for taking that as a fixed point. It's a very sensible fixed point. I was just observing that it is a fixed point. Uh, one of the examples of, uh, like the the highest level non-negotiables, right? He's willing to adjust almost everything else. Um, the worldview, uh, you know, the, the 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 picture of what it means to be an elf, he's willing to adjust again and again, right? The math, he's willing to tweak again and again. Those story fixed points, um, definitely not. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So he shifts the story. This would suggest to me, this would suggest to me, with the mathematical pressure off, for the pressure to procreate, right? With the mathematical pressure off, this would seem to suggest that this would be... Um, this is not him, like, trying to rationalize what he felt he had to do in order to make it work, that this is freeing him up to do more like what he would have wanted to do with the elves. Um, that perhaps even he found that the immediate, um, <laughs> you know, uh, headlong plunge into procreation uh, it was uh, uh, perhaps too... Uh, weird, right? Um, uh, so he doesn't want it to be that way. And so again, I think it's interesting to see 
uh, some of these implications. Okay, look at this. All this business makes the remote legend of origins too recent. In spite of all difficulties, I think the elves must awake much longer before the finding. And therefore, their propagation should be slower, and their marriages later. Guys, just pause for a second there. Um, you see the problem that he's having here? This is where, this is not a fixed story point issue. This is a uh, mythology issue. The story, remember even how, like, the tone of it, the, the shape of the original myth of the three elves, of Elf 1, Elf 2, and Elf 3? Um, and uh, this was meant to be this kind of hazily remembered um, legend of the early days, right? That the elves retained... So presumably, like the Third Age Elves, retained this, like, legend, which may or may not be exactly true, right? Um, uh, but this, 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 this hazy legend, this tradition about the beginnings. And here he's like, um, um, what's hazy about it? Why should it be hazy? That doesn't work at all. If we want that, if I want that to be, if I want there to be a hazy legend, if that legend's going to be hazy, it's got to be way the heck back there, right? I mean, way. Because if it was only, I mean, they're still right there. Like, why, why, why are they, why are they at all uncertain? I mean, if Finway himself, so I mean, think about that. If Galadriel's grandfather grew up with Elf 1, 2, and 3 still hanging around all the time, right? So if, if Galadriel's grandfather had the opportunity to get that story straight from Elf 1, 2, and 3, who probably told it a whole bunch of times in his hearing while he was growing up for the first, you know, few hundred years of his life, why should any elf of the Third Age have a misty, hazy tradition about that, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, this I believe this is what he means when he says the remote legend of origins is, is just, it's too recent, right? Um, especially with the changing... The, the diminishing of the time frame, the growth time frame, right? Now it becomes crazy recent. So, in spite of the difficulties, and remember the difficulties were, if you make the, the longer you make the gap between the awakening and the finding, the longer you make that gap, the dumber the Valar look. The dumber, more negligent, right? It's, it's, it's a bad look for the Valar, Right? As they're waiting there in Valinor, oh, Iluvatar, we cannot wait for your children to be born. And the children are born, and like tens of thousands of years go by before they notice, right? Not exactly Johnny on the spot are the Valar, right? Um, and you'll remember he only allowed for something like 800 years in the Tale of Years to elapse between the 
the uh, awakening and the finding, right? But if he's going to choose, if he wants to keep this idea of the mythic legend of origins for the elves, then he's going to have to alter that storyline. And at the risk of throwing the Valar under the bus, he's going to have to say there's much a much longer period between the Awakening and the Finding. But as another bonus, well, if it's a bonus, now there's... We got... Talk about reducing the, pro, the, the propagation pressure, right? They can propagate it whatever rate they want. And they can get married later. Just... She changes the game because it completely alters the math, right? So, okay. If the trees are destroyed in Valiant Year 888, that allows 127,872 Loar for the bliss of Valinor! Exclamation point. I love that sentence. If the trees are destroyed in Valiant Year 888, that allows 127,872 Loar for the bliss of Valinor! He loves that. <laughs> feel the love? Do you feel the love there? Um, he loves the fact that there is... that the bliss of Valinor, the trees are in bloom in Valinor for over 127,000 years. Right? Um, the exclamation point at the end of that sentence is the thing that I love most. Right? Like, when he does the math... He loves that math. Like that, 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 the mathematical, the, 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 the result that he got when he did that calculation pleases him greatly, right? This is, oh, that's awesome. That the bliss of Valinor should last 127,000 years. Perfect. If the awakening were circa 800, say Valian year 792, 12 times 66, then 96 Valian years would elapse before the death of the trees. So there would be 13,824 years of the sun between the awakening and the darkening of Valinor. But the finding should not be until Valian year 864 equals 72 Valian years later, 10,368 lower. Okay, so the elves will wake up. Over 10,000 sun years later, they're found. And then there's still 3,000 sun years left for the sojourn of the Noldor and Valinor. So that's still time for them to become acculturated over there, right? Um, it does leave that 10,000 years in which the, uh, you know, the Valar are asleep at the switch, right? Um, but, um, you know, that's kind of the cost of doing business here with this, uh, with making this get. But again, you notice how much time we have now for propagation. How long before the Quendi? How long before should the Quendi awake? Quendi awake, Valian year eight fifty. So he's now he's rethinking this math here. If if they awake, Valian year eight fifty, lower hundred twenty two thousand four hundred. They're found in eight sixty four, which is one hundred twenty four four sixteen. So that's two a little over two thousand sun years, elapsing between. So he's tweaking that ten thousand. Notice he can't do it. He's just said, like, well, it'd have to be much longer. So he throws out this first set of numbers, and he's like, that's 10,000 years. No, no, he can't live with that. He can't live with 10,000 years passing after the awakening and before they're found. So he tries again. And this one gives him 2,000 years. 
Okay. And only 216 sun years elapse between the finding and the march. Okay. Okay, so you've got a almost a 10 to 1 ratio between the time between the awakening and the finding and the time between the finding and the departure. Okay. So the first age begins with the awakening and ends with the downfall of Angband. In the older scheme, that is the War of Wrath, right? In the older scheme, the march is about first age 1080. Here it would be about 2016 plus 216 equals 2232. The embassy set out 20 years before the Great March, so the embassy sets out at 2212. See him, he's working out the new timeline, right? He clearly likes the 2,000-year thing more than the 10,000-year thing, so we see him adjusting, right? We see, I'm just trying to, trying to track with how he's thinking, and we see how the priorities are kind of shaking out. Okay. Um, I still love the stories that emerge amidst and through the math, right? When Orome asked for ambassadors, Imin, Tata, and Enel were against the whole business and refused to go. Ingwe was the eldest son of Ilion, who was in a direct line from Iminye in the fourth generation, all having been first children and sons. That is, great-great-grandson. He was tall, beautiful, beloved by the Emilie, that is, the first kindred, were given to thought, were more given to thought than the arts. His spouse was Ilwen. His first child was a son, Ingwil. His second, a daughter, Indis. Now, this is really interesting because we get almost nothing on Ingwe, right? Ingwe, the high king of all elves, right? The, the lord of the Vanyar, is uh, totally unknown, right? We, we, we know literally almost nothing about him. In the Silmarillion, we're told practically nothing about Ingwe, who he is, what he's like, right? So we see him pausing in the middle of this, and suddenly we're getting character details about Ingwe, right? Now, can we hang our hats on this? Can we say, okay, this is the truth about Ingwe? Well, we see how his ideas are shifting and changing all over the place, right? For all we knew, he completely rejected this stuff, all of it later on, right? But it is interesting in this moment to see um, we have his father, Ilion. Quiz. Why is that an interesting name? What is interesting about the fact that Ingwe's father's name was Ilion? It's probably just a coincidence, but it's a little bit interesting. Yeah, Ilion is uh, the name of Troy. Um, uh, Ilion uh, is 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 what the city of Troy is called. It's a very important word in classical tradition. So just the the kind of invocation of ancient myth of uh, different times, you know. Um, uh, it's just. It's interesting to now again. It's I, it's doubtless a coincidence. Ilian uh, certainly comes as part of his own linguistic uh, uh, things, but again, it's um, uh, 
it's just as the name of a hazy figure from the mythic past it's just interesting because of course Ilion is a very important name from hazy figures of the ancient past in the whole ancient Mediterranean world but anyway okay so Ilion who's in a direct line from Iminye uh, that is you know from Imin right um, so he's the great great grandson of Imin he was tall uh, he, the, he here is Ingwe I believe Ingwe was tall beautiful Beloved by the Emilia, he's beloved by his people, and is more given to thought than the arts. We get the name of his wife, uh, his children, and of course, Indus is made his daughter, which is not always the case. Uh, Indus, that is second wife of uh, of, of Finway. Um, so, uh, okay, yeah, Devora wants to know if names are ever co- coincidence with Tolkien. I kind of have my doubts. I think it's possible that he sometimes just doesn't think of it because he gets immersed in his own uh, languages and doesn't really think about it, like the whole famous tuna thing. Um, but um, uh, but I have a hard time. Devor, you know the name that I have the hardest time believing? No. I just flat don't believe that it is a coincidence, even though Tolkien himself insisted on it. Um, is Moria. Um, I refuse to believe that. I think that he loved the sort of linguistic joke there. Um, Moria, of course, is it means the Black Pit. It comes from his Elvish languages. But um, anybody have any Greek? What is Moria? What is... Uh, anybody know what the word Moria means in Greek? Moria means foolishness. It's the opposite of wisdom. Um, so that the elves would call, would change the name of Chazad Doom to something that meant the Black Pit, but which also means foolishness, the opposite of wisdom, right? Uh, it works too perfectly as a linguistic joke for me ever to be convinced. And I got, Tolkien said it was a coincidence. I don't believe him. He also said that it's a pure coincidence that... He also said that the Rohirrim have nothing to do with the Anglo-Saxons, so don't think it. Um, and I don't believe that either. <laughs> so, anyway. Um, <clears throat> okay. Uh, all right, let's keep going. <laughs> I couldn't resist this slide. I wanted to kind of capture this. I'm skipping all the charts here. You know, all the tables, all the math. Um, and I know that most of you um, I know that most of you don't object to my skipping most of the math. But I wanted to make sure that we we understand, that we appreciate the tone here. Listen to I believe that this is stuff, this is the audience is himself. Right? This is him figuring stuff out. See if you catch the tone here, or at least if you agree with me about his tone here. 
These proportions of yield in each generation added to the population of, gener of generation 24, 24,436, make a population of between 27,000 and 28,000. Allowing for losses and perils before the finding, 27,000 should be a safe estimate. This will make Avari equals 9,000, Eldar equals 18,000. Therefore, since 172, that is one 172nd, of 18,000 is 250, at the march, the Vanyar were 772 seconds equals 1,750, the Noldor were 7,000, and the Lindar 9,250. These are very suitable numbers. When do Ingwe, Finwe, and Elwe come in? If born before the finding in first age 2016, they should be then adult and at least 24, that is, born no later than 1992. Now, this is the date of the last birth of generation 23. Do you hear, do you hear how much fun he's having? Like, this is a hoot. He is loving this, right? He, he, he is... I, I, it's just, it is clear to me that even if this were not a means to an end, and I think it is for him an important means to an end, it's important to build the internal consistency of reality. He can, it, this, he's establishing a firm foundation of secondary world fact right, to base his story upon. Um, that's all important. So as a means to an end, it's worth it, and uh, it's important to him, and we can see why. But I think it's equally clear that he loves this. He just... Why did he write out so many tables? Because he enjoyed it. He clearly is loving it, is enjoying it. And... Every time he has to sit down, instead of um, in, instead of rolling his eyes and pulling out his hair, well, shoot, there goes my whole generational scheme again. Now I've got to do that old bloody thing from start to finish again. That is not the tone, right? If you have that reaction as a reader, it's okay. And I forgive you, and you don't have to be ashamed of that. But it's obvious that Tolkien did not. Um, that he seems to return almost with a kind of glee to do it all again. Um, again, this is the guy who did that long division to 138 decimal places for no reason that any... There can be no objective justification for doing long division to that many decimal places. I'm sorry, there is no excuse for doing that. Rather, the only excuse for doing that is if you quite enjoy doing long division. And it seems that he did, right? Um, that this kind of thing... And I, I'd honestly... Seeing how much fun he was obviously having in doing these calculations is another one, for me, like a top five thing that I feel like I have learned... In fact, I, I think if I had to sort of think of it in terms of, like, what do I feel that I have learned about Tolkien as a person from these new writings that we're, you know, reading here for the first time, that's really near the top of my list. Um, it is... Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, he likes it. He enjoys it. He is reveling in this level of detail and specificity. 
it seems to give him a kind of pure and intrinsic satisfaction um, to do the sums. And it seems to me connected with... I've talked many times. Uh, we talked about this a lot. We were seeing this all over the place when we were doing the history of the Lord of the Rings um, uh, Return of the Shadow, Treason of Isengard, and the War of the Ring. Um, looking at the ways in which the process of creative writing for Tolkien is a process not of invention, but of discovery. Right, Him feeling like he is discovering something. He always talks about it as if he came across something that was there, not something that he invented out of his head. Right? Um, the tone of all these mathematical passages, of all these mathematical calculations, uh, the sort of spirit of the math tables in this section seems to me to be like somebody who sort of like discovers that something must be and then proves that it is or then sees it, for the, then encounters it for the first time. Like, this is, this is reality. Like, this is, this is... He's not always sure that he's discovered something, that he's right in his discoveries. He, he might not be, be correct about what he thinks he's discovered. It, it, it might not be quite right. Um, now, in doing this, he can roll up his sleeves and prove it. Yeah, this, this is the story. I thought I'd found it, and I'm right. It works, right? This is good. And that kind of um, element, that kind of tone here, I think is uh, um, very important uh, for us to just, again, even if you don't share it, and it's okay if you don't share his enthusiasm for these uh, generational tables. But I think it's important, if you want to understand what makes him tick, if you want to understand his stories, if you want to understand his process, uh, and what, you know, what it was like to be Tolkien, it's important to see this and to, uh, uh, to, to, to kind of confront this. Um, Stephen, I agree with you. I feel that whatever else Tolkien would have thought about personal computers, he would have enjoyed spreadsheets. I completely agree. Um, uh, I think it very possible that Tolkien would have shared my own personal pleasure in taking a formula and extending it down across an entire column of calculations and seeing all that happen. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Now, Ryan, that's interesting. Ryan says, ironically, that's how mathematicians feel about their work. their revelations of reality. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, yes. Exactly. I, I think that th they're... And again, Ryan, I would never have even... You know, six months ago, I can't imagine myself formulating the sentence <clears throat> Tolkien's attitude towards his sub-created world was very like the attitude of mathematicians towards their research. I would never have thought of it that way. 
but I agree. It is like that. It is like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I agree, Tomas. If he'd, on the other hand, if he had word processors, a lot of this information would have been lost, uh, as he would have overwritten a lot of it. Yeah, probably true. Probably true. Okay. But of course, he's going to tweak it again, because of course he is, right? Now, note this is later. So the other stuff we've been, most of the stuff we've been reading and discussing for some time now has been right around 1958, 1959. That's what um, Carl said was, the, uh, you know, says in the text is the uh, um, best understanding of when the, the dates on that stuff is. Um, but um, a few years later, 1965, he comes back to it. And when he comes back to it, he makes a change. Elves' ages must be counted in two different stages, growth years and life years. The growth years were relatively swift, and in Middle-earth equals three Loar. The life years were very slow, and in Middle-earth equals 144 Loar. Okay, so he's finding a new balance. Apparently, the one-to-one thing didn't end up working for him, right? Didn't work it for him. Um, he's got to tweak it again. Okay, so let's try one to three for growth years. So we're, we've, we're, we've, we were at 144 to one all the way through. We went down to 12 to one for growth years. We went down, we toyed with it sometimes being 10 to one. Then he went all the way down to one to one. Now back up to three to one. Okay, so let's make it, let's, let's try three to one. Elves were in the womb for one growth year. So now pregnancy is back up to three years. Um, so I think he uh, they apparently negotiated a compromise with the, uh, the Elvish Mother's Union. They reached full speech and intelligence in two growth years. They reached full growth of body in 24 growth years. Notice one immediate consequence of the shift back to having growth years not equal one-to-one. Now it once again begins to reassert the parallels with humans, right? Now they're not just identical, you know, partially identical and then partially completely different, which is what we saw in the one-to-one growth year thing. Now, once again, they're proportional. They reached full speech and intelligence in two growth years. That's two-year-old who has full speech and intelligence would be very precocious, right? So they're, they're different. Uh, they're definitely different, but they're still a kind of uh, sort of comparison. They then had 48 life years of youth and then 48 life years of full age. So remember that 96 years that he was talking about before, he's subdividing that now into youth and full age or steadfast body, by which time their knowledge ceased to increase. After that, the fading time began, of unknown duration, very slow, in which, as they say, the Thea slowly consumed the Hroa until it became merely a memory. So the fading time starts. How has he changed? How is this system majorly different? The first obvious difference is the three-to-one ratio with the growth years. But notice there's, there's, there's more. There's another big change that he's making. He had, there was a pretty sharp cutoff at around 90, 96, right? Now he's saying you've got 
48 years of you get the 24 growth years then you've got 48 years long years life years of youth 48 years of full age and then merely the beginning of the very slow process of the fading time so remember one of the things that he was calculating one of the play testing things that he was doing before was figuring making sure like Galadriel has time um you know she's not supposed she's not too old right she's not going to be faded already but you remember she, he had her right on the cusp right she was um she was a she was on the border of geriatric elf in one of his earlier calculations he was okay with that he's like it's all right that she should be you know in her you know kind of uh geriatric crisis there as her fading time is rapidly approaching at the end of the third age and so that kind of makes her temptations and overcoming of those temptations more significant, right? More poignant uh, because of her um, incipient fading at that point. Notice again, the pressure is decreased there in this new scheme. Okay, if we neglect the difference of speed and call each unit a year, we then see that an elf reached maturity at 24, end of youth at 72, and old age at 120. In mortal equivalence, the age in physical and other characteristics indicated can be found approximately by multiplying by three quarters. Full speech in 18 months, full growth in 18 years, end of youth approximately at 54, and old age approximately at 90. Nice to know that I am still in my youth, according to Tolkien. I'm, I'm uh, 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 glad to know that. I'm going to uh, when I turn 54, though, you know, I'm going to have to have a celebration that I am entering my period of full, uh, full age. I'll be, I'll be a full age when I get to 54, apparently, by Tolkien's calculations. Um, uh, yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so um, uh, it is interesting. Chad is pointing out that 1965 is uh, the year of Karl Hostetter's birth. That's kind of fun. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, okay. Old age approximately at 90. This strikes me as a very interesting change in how he's thinking about elves. On the one hand, um, on the one hand, he re-insists that's a word, if you follow me there, he re-insists on the mortal equivalence, right? He's still thinking about the parallels. But he's thinking about it in a completely new way. This uh, 0.75, right, this three-quarters ratio, there's never been anything like that before. I don't think. I don't remember anything like that before. The whole reason he's been fixating on the year 24, you know, 20, 
21, 18, you know, 18, 21, 20, 24 is parallel to human, right? The whole, I mean, as we saw at the very beginning when he was working out this mortal equivalency thing, like, let me help you to think about elvish growth and development in mortal equivalence, right? So when an elf reaches this many years of age at 144 to 1 back in the old, old days, um, they're like a 21-year-old human, right? So it's uh, Marian time, right? Time to begin possibly thinking about getting married. Um, but the whole point was that the the age year, the life year, the whole reason you're doing that math in the first place and not just saying, not just giving it in low R in the first place, right, um, was that those numbers were equal one-to-one with humans. That was the whole point. And now they're not anymore. Now they're not anymore. Now they're three-quarters ratio. Full speech in 18 months, full growth in 18 years, end of youth approximately 54. Um, 24 doesn't equal 24 anymore. Now 24 equals 18. 72 doesn't equal 72. Now it equals 54. 120 doesn't equal 120. It equals 90 when it comes to mortal equivalence. I'm not sure I fully grasp the implications of this but it's very interesting to me that he got to that to this point. It, I mean, to me, it begs the question: why, why are we doing equivalencies at all anymore? Instead of saying three life years to one or three growth years to one mortal year, and then 144, why not just say if what you mean is it takes them 72? years to grow up, why not just say that? They reach maturity at 72. They reach the end of youth at, you know, 8,000 and whatever, you know, whatever that number ends up being. They reach old age at, you know, 15,000 years. Like, why not just say that? The whole point of not saying that in the first place was to make it directly equivalent to humans. And now it's different. Right? Now it's, um, uh, now it doesn't march one-to-one. So one conclusion that I can't help but draw is that as he's trying to finalize the math, trying to finalize the system, he's thinking through the implications of the worldview differently. Right? He's thinking it through um, uh, And one of the ways in which he's thinking about it differently is that it feels to me like humans and elves are diverging a little bit. You remember that was the the unlikely point that we began with tonight when he made that shift. No, they're really quite similar, elves and I mean, except for the hitting the pause button for 10,000 years. But uh, apart from that, like, for the first 24 years, very similar, right? Made of the same stuff, very similar. And now he's saying, he's not only saying, yeah, they're not quite as similar as that. He's introducing a wider gap, it seems to me, conceptually, between elves and men, right? It's not um, 24 elf years doesn't mean 24 human years anymore. 
they're not the same. And that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, okay, so we're going to playtest this new system. Celeborn was older than Galadriel. It is difficult to be sure of any person whose origin goes far back into the First Age. Celeborn was in the second generation of the three elf kings that led the march. He was, by tradition, the son of a younger second brother of Elway, Fingal, called Elmo. So Elway had his famous brother, Olway, and his less famous brother, Elmo, concerning which, uh, you know, it's a little bit hard. Um, it's an unfortunate fact. Tolkien was not prescient and did not foresee Sesame Street, obviously, and can't be blamed for not doing so. Um, anyway, son of a younger second brother of Elway called Elmo. But the relative ages of the kings Ingwey, Finway, and Elway is not known. Elmo probably was much younger than Finway. Goadriel was of the third generation, being the daughter of Finarfin, fourth child, son of Finway, fifth child. However, Goadriel, so Finarfin was the fifth child of Finway, and Goadriel was the fourth child of Finarfin. Um, so there's uh, two generations from, so if you've got the three elf kings, right? Ingwey, Finway, and Elway. Uh, Celeborn is one generation down from them, right? He's the son of the younger brother of Elway. Um, but he's, uh, and Galadriel is two generations down. She's third generation from them. So she's the granddaughter, not the son, of the same generation of the three kings. But she's the fourth child of the fifth child, right? So she's, it's technically, yeah, it's only two generations, but she's even more removed than that makes it sound, right? Um, and this is why he's saying, like, it's, it's not, um, he thinks that Elmo was probably much younger than Finway, so that kind of messes it up, too. So what are the relative ages of Galadriel and Celeborn? Eh, a little uncertain. However, Galadriel was young at the exile which, whatever scale of aging is assumed for elves while dwelling in Amon, means relatively near to the end of the days of bliss and to the exile. So she has to have been born relatively near to the end of the days of bliss and to the exile. She can't be too much older. If she's going to be young and feisty at the time of the exile, which is how he sees her at this point, um, then that must be true. According to elvish calculations, the period between the arrival of the Eldar in Amon and the end of the first stage in the overthrow of Morgoth was 3,100 Loar. So there's 3,100 years of the sun between the arrival of the Eldar and the War of Wrath. So on the one hand, that's not very much. On the other hand, um, it's actually quite a bit um, when we're talking about dates in the first age. Anyway, okay, if that is correct... Then Celeborn was of unknown age when he entered Beleriand, but certainly 24 and full-grown. Added in 3,100 Loar, nearly 21 life years, so 3,100 Loar, that time is 21 life years. And so he was 45 at the end of the first age. So that's like the minimum of, of Celeborn's age at the, end of the uh, at the end of the first age. He's at least 45 in total elf years. He married Goadriel shortly after when she was 28. 21 mortal equivalent with that three-quarters thing. Um, so in mortal years, 
she was uh, a teenager at the time of the exile, right? So, so when we're trying to picture Galadriel as he's picturing her in the story, we should picture a late teenage Galadriel at the crossing of the Helcaraxa, basically. Okay. In Third Age 3021, when bereft of Galadriel, this is Kelborn we're still talking about, um, so when Galadriel leaves and Kelborn stays in Middle-earth at the end of the Third Age, he was 68 plus 21 equals 89, so he's a little more than 66 in mortal equivalent and advanced in maturity. So uh, this would make this system would make Celeborn not an old man, right? He wouldn't be an old elf. Um, so he's eighty nine. So he's um, um, advanced in maturity, but he's not yet to old age. Um, again, by going back to the where were we here? Um, end of youth at seventy two and old age at one twenty. Um, so he's eighty nine. So he's he's only fifteen. 17 years. 17 years past the end of his youth, right? So, uh, even uh, even Celeborn still has quite a bit of tread left on his tires at the end of the Third Age um, by this by this system, right? This new uh, way of thinking about it. Um, okay. Okay. But if, as seems a probable tale, Amroth was the son of Celeborn... Let's just imagine Emroth was the son of Celeborn. The following calculation is possible. Celeborn and Galadriel were not married, though betrothed, during the dreadful years of the Battle of Wrath, nor for some time, nor for some while afterwards in the confusions of the Second Age, i.e. not until Second Age 24. So again, it took a while for the dust to settle after the War of Wrath, so they didn't tie the knot until after that dust settles. So, okay, so... Second age, 24, is going to be the time when they actually got married. Amroth, their first child, was born in second age, 33. Okay, so we've got, uh, uh, what is that, nine years, right? So that's plenty of time. Remember, uh, the it's only one growth year pregnancy. It's only three years, right? So um, conception, Amroth would have been conceived in second age, 30, so six years after their marriage. He was full-grown in Second Age 105, and at the founding of Eregion, Second Age 750, he was nearly four and a half years older. He was 29. So, um, this is so Amroth is a full-grown-up by the time we get the uh, the founding of Eregion. Okay, at the time of the sack of Eregion, 1697, he was 35. At the end of the Second Age, he was 47 plus. <clears throat> At the time of the disaster in Moria and the loss of Nimradel, very important in the career of Emroth, he was 60 to 61. Nearing the end of youth, but in mortal years, about 45. This is possible. The story was probably that Nimradel would not give her love to the incoming non-Sylvan elves and hid herself in the mountains, not wishing to go west. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I love how he puts go west in parentheses. What is the, what is that a euphemism? <laughs> she doesn't wish to go west, right? <laughs> is that is that her euphemism for like marrying a geezer, right? He's not only a non-sylvan elf, he's also um 
you know, he's nearing the end of his youth, right? Damroth is not a spring chicken anymore by this calculation, right? So, I mean, he's still technically in his youth, but, um, you know, he doesn't have so many decades of youth left at that point. So, um, yeah, uh, I guess that's, it's, <laughs> that's kind of like going west. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but, uh, yeah, okay, so... And now, of course, this is, um, <laughs> Carl suggested in his notes that this passage is from the time. So you may remember, if you know Unfinished Tales, um, Christopher Tolkien raises this question. He says that there was a time, um, there was a point at which Tolkien was entertaining the idea that Amroth was the son of Galadriel and Celeborn. This paragraph is that time, apparently, when he was considering that. Um, that's what Carl was suggesting, that uh, although he rejected it later, the, the idea that Amroth was the son of Galadriel and Celeborn. Um, this is the... And can I just say, um, I, I, to, to speak like uh, uh, Anne Shirley, I got a thrill when I read that note. Um, anytime we're getting a text that Christopher Tolkien has just told us about in his notes and commentary, right? You know, when he just says things like, he considered this, but then later on he rejected it. But he doesn't give us the actual text, the actual story, even the actual writing, right, in which that happened. And here it is, right? So I, so I, I, I realizing that, I got a little thrill. I thought that was fun. Um, but, um... Uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and I, I'm not a big fan of this as a concept either, Chad. I'm glad that he jettisoned the idea that Amroth was the son of Galadriel and Celeborn, um, but it's interesting. But notice, notice one of the consequences of him. I was, I was observing before, and I'll, I'll finish after, after I say this, um, I was noting before the, the weirdness of that three-quarters ratio thing, right? How the number 24 doesn't mean anything anymore. I mean, it is a milestone still in the life of an elf. Sort of. It's like a totally abstract now um, milestone, which is no longer a direct mortal equivalent. Now you have to apply the three-fourths ratio to figure out what it's like for humans. But notice here one of the consequences of this. One of the consequences of this is that in the old days, if he were 60 life years, I mean, if he were 60 total elf years, growth years plus life years, again, the whole point of it is that it was mortal equivalent. So Amroth would now be, this would be a serious, like now Amroth and Nimrodel would be a serious, um, you know, January, May situation, right? We'd be talking about an old guy and a young girl, right? There would be a little bit of creep factor or at least comedy factor. Um, I say comedy factor because uh, people in the Middle Ages were almost endlessly amused by January, May weddings. Um, this was a, a, a common uh, subject of usually quite ribald humor in the Middle Ages. Um, but um, anyway, so um, uh, 
he um it, it that's what it would it's what it would have meant like in previous in all previous versions if he were 60 in total life years at that point it would mean he was the mortal equivalent of 60 remember what tolkien how tolkien struggled to try to get arwen's age right that is for it to be fitting and not look weird not look like she was much older than he. I mean, she's thousands of years older than he, but that doesn't count with mortal equivalents, right? Um, remember the gymnastics he was doing, trying to get that in. Notice how easy this makes it. So he was 60 to 61 when he married Nimmerdale. But fortunately, that doesn't mean 60 or 61 anymore. It just means 45. So he's not a 60-year-old guy marrying, you know, a younger woman in her early marriage rule years. He's a 45-year-old guy. So he's not a 60-year-old guy marrying a 21-year-old. He's a 45-year-old guy marrying a 21-year-old. This is possible. As to, now, 60 is possible, too, but funny uh, at the best, creepy at the worst. Um, and... Um, uh, but it's, you know, so it's it's within the parameters of acceptable, right? As he's, again, as he's doing his playtesting here uh, with Amroth. Um, but of course, remember, I, another thing Christopher didn't tell us um, was exactly why Tolkien jettisoned the idea of Amroth being the son of Galadriel and Celeborn. We didn't know why. What did he like about it? Christopher didn't speculate. Being very prudent and cautious, as I am not, because I have a shrewd theory as to why he didn't. That is, we've seen again and again how this is kind of thing is happening, right? I bet you at the end of the day, he looked at these numbers and said, no, no, I, I, I can't, I can't. In the end, it's too much like the Merchant's Tale. I, I know. Uh, um, if Amroth is the son of Galadriel and Celeborn, he is too old for Nimrodel. And Nimrodel is the whole point of the Amroth story, right? Um, so he can't, therefore, logically, he cannot be their child. Um, that really... Um, I'm not saying it's the only reason... But that, I bet you, based on how he's working the math out here, this is possible. That's a lukewarm commendation for how the math is coming out here, right? Um, and when we've seen him say this is possible before, that has often been followed by a rejection of the system, right? But in this case, Amroth and Nimrod, or, <clears throat> sorry, Amroth as son of Celeborn and Galadriel, that's not a fixed point. That's a story bit that can go, right? Um, you know, Elrond, Calabrian, Arwen, their timelines, there's only so much flexibility. There's a lot of fixed points there, right? The wedding of Aragorn and Arwen. Um, those are all fixed points. There's an easier thing to get rid of here. I doesn't have to change the whole system to accommodate Amroth and Nimrodel. Instead, he can just ditch, make Amroth not the son of Gladio and Caliborn, and now everything's fine, and it's not creepy anymore. Um, again, I'm not saying it's the only reason, but it 
would seem very much in keeping with the kind of analysis we have seen him doing throughout this book so far. Okay, um, I'm going to stop there. I am confident, confident we are going to come to the end of part one next time. So do, if you have not yet read through the end of part one, read through the end of part one, uh, and we will finish the uh, uh, time and aging section next time. Um, And uh, then we will have uh, our little holiday end of year break, and we will reconvene uh, a couple days after Tolkien's birthday uh, next year in 2022. All right. Thanks, everybody, for joining me, and I will see you guys next week. Bye now.